separated the individual from the collective a long time ago. We got great personal freedom. That was kind of the sociological equivalent of fleeing the atom. And in doing so, we can't the individual drift away from the constraints of community and culture. Bienvenue and welcome to Cirque du Sound, a sonic trip brought to you by Cirque du Soleil where we redefine the boundaries of creativity with some of today's most forward thinkers, doers, and creators. My name is Michel Apries. I'm the creative guide of Cirque du Soleil. At Cirque du Soleil, our special skill is recognizing good creative ideas in all their disguises. We know that creativity can come from anywhere. Right now, in the background, you're hearing the spellbinding music of Ka, composed by our friend René Dubéry. Kai is a very special Cirque du Soleil show that tells the story of imperial twins who are separated at the prime of their youth and must undergo a rite of passage of self-discovery. The show is about their encounters with Ka. What is Ka? Ka is the fire that has the dual power to destroy or illuminate. This idea of the rite of passage is incredibly powerful. It's everywhere. You find it across all cultures throughout history and right up to contemporary times, part of the hero's journey. Journeys in the desert, difficult hunting challenges, psychedelic experiences, these kinds of things come to mind. But also more mundane things like your first haircut, your first paycheck, the first time you ask a girl or a guy out. And if you think about it, you can probably name a rite of passage in your own life. For me, it was my, my first day at SIP. You know, I was a freelance director. It was my first time on the payroll somewhere. I kind of felt on that day that something profound was changing in my life. And it was all about connecting to the community of artists and staff members at SIP. So I had found my family. Rites of passage help us mark time and significant events. They also galvanize creativity, encourage innovation and experimentation, and drive us forward. So how do they do this? That's what we're going to talk about today. I'm excited to introduce a guest who has thought a lot about the rite of passage and the role it plays in various societies. Wade Davis is here to help us understand it all. For a Canadian anthropologist, Wade Davis is a bit of a rock star. He's an explorer in residence at the National Geographic Society. They call him one of their explorers for the millennium. He has been described as a rare combination of scientist, scholar, poet, and passionate defender of all of life's diversity. In recent years, his work has taken him from East Africa to Nepal, from Peru to Polynesia, from Tibet to Greenland, just to name a few of the many environs that Wade has explored recently. He is a respected voice who has given much thought to the role of ritual in our lives. Wade Davis, welcome to Cirque du Sound. Wonderful to be with you, Michel. 
people have to know that we work together on a show here called Septimo Dia No Descansare, based on the musical and cultural legacy of a band from Buenos Aires. For that show, we had actually created a planet with a civilization based on the music, the lyrics of the band. And so there I was with Wade Davis asking, does it make sense, that civilization? Oh, well, you know, Michelle, that was such a fun thing to do together. But it's kind of interesting because what you asked me to do was to kind of envision what would a world informed only by Soda Stereo, all the reference to that band, their music, their passion, what would it look like? And what we were really doing is constructing any world, because one of the fascinating things about anthropology is even though in terms of human justice and human rights, we always are speaking about the fact that every culture's got something to say, each deserves to be heard. There's no hierarchy in the affairs of culture. Every culture is a unique answer to a fundamental question, what does it mean to be human and alive, and so on. At the same time, what draws us together is not just a common history that's written in our bones. The fact that we're all children of Africa, including those of us who walked out of the ancient continent some 65,000 years ago, but we also all face the same adaptive imperatives. And that, of course, is what passage rights are part of. You know, the fascinating thing is that every culture, by definition, faces the same challenges, the same adaptive imperatives. And the poetry of it is the fact that so many different answers to that question, you know, so many different options have been discovered. But when we really get down to it, every culture has to feed their children, educate their children, and of course, deal with the transformation of a child into an adult. I mean, Blake called it the journey from innocence to experience. Biologically, we identify it as puberty. And these transitions are marked in every single culture in very formal ways, in ritualistic ways, with the possible exception of our own, where the only kind of passage rites we have, we kind of identify as you sort of did in your intro, you know, your first haircut, your first car, your first date. In the West, we call those years the teenager years because it's the years in between And the reason teenage years are so fraught and challenging for young people in our society, I suspect, is precisely because we don't really have formal rituals that send the message loud and clear that, you know, life as a child is over, adulthood has begun. That's so important, you're right. How would you define broadly rite of passage? It's interesting, you know, it, it really was originally a French phrase, we du passage, and it was the idea that it is a transition in terms of growing up from infants, from birth, infancy, childhood, young adulthood, adulthood, householder phase, elderly years, death. All of these passages are passages of life, life to death. And the one that is so absolutely critical because it's not about the individual it's about the collective it's about the community it is the passage right that transforms a child into a young adult and the reason that is so important i mean we know that every culture reveres their children and we protect them with everything we have for all of their lives and all of the time that they are with us as infants so then you have to ask the obvious question 
Why then, if we've been so protective of them, do we suddenly, almost universally, expose them to such ordeals, such pain in some cases, such challenges that mark the transition which you would call the rite of passage, the coming of age, the transition that is ritualistically acknowledged by the societies? And the answer for that is very simple. The message has to be clear. Childhood is over. You are now, as we age, and you replace us, coming at us from below, the entire fate of our people is now in your hands. And so that's why I think, Michel, we see so many dramatic, almost ordeal-like initiations. You know, in, in New Guinea, for example, in the Sepik River, literally scarification, which transforms the skin of a child into that of a crocodile, a sacred being. Or in the Amazon, where individuals have to sort of put their hands into baskets of incredibly terrible ants, one bite of which can swell up and freeze your arm for a week, and you have to endure scores of those bites. So these things just pile one atop the other in this amazing weave that we call culture. It's amazing. And I was listening to you and I was thinking about my older brother and sister. They got in trouble so much when they were teenagers. And I always wondered why they went to this meeting of the danger. So they're giving themselves the rites of passage that were not provided by the parents, no? Michelle, you're always, it's, it's so funny because you, you're such an artist, but you think in ways of almost like an anthropologist because you're always so spot on. And what you, two things just jump out of what you just mentioned. One is that in our society, we liberated the individual from the collective a long time ago. We got great personal freedom. That was kind of the sociological equivalent of splitting the atom. And in doing so, we cast the individual adrift away from the constraints of community and culture even. And of course, most societies, the community still counts for more than the individual because without the strength of the community, the individual would not have the support upon which his life or her life might be necessary. So part of this is that in general, we have lost a sense of community. We think it's completely normal that our aunts live in Florida and our grandparents are in California and we live in Montreal and, you know, we're scattered all over the world. Well, that's kind of a new thing. You know, my, like your older brother and sister, I had this really wild stepsister who basically made James Dean look like a folk angel, you know. And yet I think a lot of that was just acting out and having no one to kind of, in a way, contain through ritual, through attention, through community priorities, the kind of the surge mm. of hormones and energy that, of course, by definition, physiologically uh, marks that transition as much as a chronological or a societal transition. So trying to figure out ways to capture that power and release it in helpful ways to the society, that's what these passage rites are often about. It's funny because I always say that in our society, North American one, and I know it's very diverse, but in some parts of it, like the one I belong to, we ignore death. And this is why I think our life are not at as as intense as they, they could be. But you just made me realize that we ignore that so important passage from childhood to the adulthood. In the past, I worked with classes of teenagers and like workshops for, for drama and stuff. And I was always, always amazed by the energy that they have and 
I love the attitude that want to change the world. And I always thought, okay, we don't leverage that. And it's just, we, we park them in high schools and we just nag at them. We completely, we, we don't get it. We just ignore. Yeah, I mean, if you think back artistically, you know, one can argue that those teenage years are almost the peak of a human being's creativity. I think of the Beatles getting together at such an early age, you know, but certainly in the, the common high school experience is one of isolation, I think. And, and don't forget, what is school all about? School's not just about the transmission of skills and knowledge. It's also about the socialization of the individual into the collective. And that's why we have such a, a powerful sense of the normative, you know, how we, we define a kind of norm that we're comfortable with. And any student, any child who doesn't fit that norm, whether they, they're restless or creative, you know, we suddenly almost create these categories to label them as deviant. Yeah. All these labels we put on kids when, in fact, they may be just in this kind of burst of creativity. I always certainly remember that the most interesting kids I knew when I was that age were the oddballs. I know that as artists, people get the calling a little bit early, but the real decision happens when you're 14, 15. I realized that once I was working on a movie and the best special effect guy in Montreal was like Mozart. He started pretty early and he was so, so good. And he was, his task for the movie was to make a replica of my arm. And I, I instantly asked him like, Oh, I'm sure that you, your mother was, was mad at you when you were 15 because you were putting things in the dryer in the basement and things were flaming and stuff. He said, Oh, did you speak to my mother? And ever since then, when I work with the designer, I ask, tell me about your life at 15. And you, you would not be surprised because you know about that, that the essence of the designers are all there. The way they drew, why they did it. It, it was 14, 15. To me, when I deal with a designer, I often picture, okay, he or she is 15. And this is where we relate so well. And especially at Cirque du Soleil, because there's an embracement of freedom. We don't, Look for conventional. We're very inclusive, even uh, uh, in a neurological way. And I found out one of the reasons why I love this company is because we embrace those elements of their personality. If you want to be a juggler, you need to do it at least four hours a day. That's apart from the show. So if you're like normal and beige, you, you know, you cannot do that. You have to have that little thing. So, Well, Michelle, you've always had that. Ever since I first, you know, was in touch with you, there was a boy-like quality that I don't think you've ever lost, which is something I find so endearing with so much fun, you know. But I think those early years, like when I was 14, my mother, who was a, a simple but determined Canadian woman, had told me that Spanish was the language of the future. And she worked all year as a secretary in an elementary school to raise enough money to allow me to join a small group of boys that a language teacher was taking to Colombia. And it was an extraordinary experience because I was like at 14, the youngest, and many of the other lads on the trip were 16 or, or, or even older, and many of them succumbed to homesickness. And I honestly felt quite the opposite, uh, as if I'd finally found my home. And mm -hmm. I, I just rambled around Colombia on my own, and I felt such freedom. And of course, that that kind of foreshadowed what my life would be. And Absolutely. by the same token, I remember when I moved from Montreal to the West Coast, my parents put me in a boarding school and it was a 
hideous experience. The prefects were absolutely fascist and cruel and vicious and so on. And that summer, the headmaster called me up. I'd only been there one year. And he asked me if I wanted to be the head prefect. And I I was still 15 or 16. I (laughs) had the audacity to say to him, I'll accept your invitation on one condition that on the first day of term, I can speak to the entire school without any teachers present. And he said, okay. And I literally, at the age of 16, how did I do this? I announced a revolution. And I said, we're going to transform this place. There'll be no more rules like this, no more violence, no more cruelty. Of course, I was like Kerensky and the whole thing fell apart in the chaos of a Lenin-like revolution. But the point is that, you know, the, the impulse to stand up for justice or to speak your mind or to not give a damn, you can look back and, and it's all forged in that teenage, in it's that time. There. It's all there. It's all there. Wow, it's fascinating. Just a quick reminder, you're listening to Cirque du Sound, a brand new podcast from Cirque du Soleil, looking at the interdisciplinary roots of creativity. Fans go first. Whether it's early access to seasonal deals or pre-sales, pick your tickets before everybody else. Sign up for Club Cirque today and you'll be the first to hear about access to special events, pre-sales and discounts. Take a look behind the curtain and enjoy up-to-date news on all things Cirque du Soleil, including shows, artists, and latest innovations. Visit CirqueDuSoleil.com to subscribe. My name is Michel Apriste, and today we're focusing on rites of passage and the role they play in our societies and in the stories of our lives. And I'm here with the famous anthropologist and a great friend of mine, Wade Davis, I have a question for you. If, you. if you think of our lives as a story, what part is played by the writ of passage? Does it encourage the, the conformity and the sense uh, of belonging? I mean, this is a big kind of conundrum be- between the celebration of the individual or the power of the community. I mean, it, it, none of us, I don't think, would want to go back, those of us raised in the West, to a world where we were absolutely confined by the constraints of the consensus. That's exactly what we've rebelled against all our lives. I mean, that was the spirit of the Enlightenment and so on. But it does come, we should recognize it comes at a cost and you lose the comfort. It's in the same way that when we liberate ourselves from the tyranny of absolute faith in the Renaissance, we also embrace the, the challenge of losing the comfort of faith. You know, you can't have it all. And I think that the the passage right by definition, is an institution of conformity. I mean, it's it's a way of of saying, okay, you're no longer a child. You're part of the community now. The community depends on you, and you can't mess about. You can't screw it up. So there's an element of kind of the tyranny of the community in that. But again, you get the comfort of belonging to something bigger than oneself. And, you know, this is something we see, incidentally, in such an interesting way in hunting and gathering societies around the world. The community always has to triumph over the individual if anybody is going to survive. And so whether it's in the Arctic with the Inuit or the forests of Borneo with the nomadic Penan or the Athabascan peoples of of northern British Columbia, hunting societies always favor the collective. And and, and part of that is very simple. If, If you and I and your brother are a small 
extended family unit, and I suddenly do, don't get along with you, Michelle, and your brother sides with me, and then we go off, and you're left alone, that night your children have a 66% less chance of eating, right? So in these societies, there's a tremendous mm. um, pressure. For example, in, in Nuptatuk, the language of the Inuit, there are no swear words. They don't have them because that would be so demeaning to people. If you disapprove, you simply are silent. In the Penan, there is no word for thank you because everything is automatically shared because you never know who will be the next to bring food to the table. And so there's a tremendous prohibition on wow. direct conflict. You know, I was once uh, in the Arctic, about 250 miles out on the ice from Iglulik, and we're in a huge blizzard, and we got into this little shack. They built an igloo for a couple people, and there was a man and a woman who that night, in the middle of the night, in this blizzard howling, had a fight. And the woman was so mad, she kicked a block of ice out of the igloo. This was such a violent transgression of the mores of that society that that couple were so ashamed of themselves that they were gone by dawn because they felt they had embarrassed themselves in front of the whole group in that way. So you have this conformity that allows for cultural survival. And within that conformity, you can find comfort, but you can also feel oppressed by the power of the communal bond. It goes both ways. It's, it's so refreshing to hear different perspectives. It brings back to me a, a memory. The first tour of Cirque du Soleil in Japan, at sick a lot of our artistic technicians, they used the bikes to get to their uh, lodging in, in the evening and, and to, to get to the site in the morning or afternoon. So they always lock their bikes on the fence that surrounds the, the site. And when they did that in Japan, the Japanese people would, would say like, why are you locking your bike on a fence? And the guys and girls would say, well, it's because we don't want to be stolen. And the Japanese went, we don't steal here. It would be a dishonor for us. We, we don't go low like that. Really? No, we would never, never do this. It would be a dishonor. That's also a great example because that is how the power of the collective, if you will, works for the benefit of all in a place like Japan. But of course, it also means that if you go to Japan, you'll see that everything is ritualized. The way you bow to someone signifies your status vis-a-vis -vis that person. You've often, I'm sure, been invited out as an honored guest. And you see around the table the poor underlings who all face two and three hour rides home on the Tokyo subway but they have to stay until the dinner's over at midnight. Mm -hmm. And you can see the way that all of this can sort of spin into a, a texture that envelops the individual in traditions. And of course, that's the whole experiment in the West is that, you know, we, we've not just eliminated the sense of community, particularly in the United States, but we've almost eliminated the notion of society itself. And... Mm -hmm. You know, I think this is one of the things you're seeing in the United States. I mean, I used to always say during the time of COVID, I wrote a piece for Rolling Stone, but it went really viral and had 362 million social media impressions. It just, it hit a nerve. Everybody was on edge, I guess, at that time. But one of the things I sort of said is, you know, if you want to understand the difference between Canada and the United States, just go 
and get your groceries at Safeway. And what I meant by that is if you get your groceries in the States, almost anywhere, there's a kind of an ethnic, educational, financial, economic, class, a racial divide between you and the checkout person, which is almost impossible to bridge, right? I think that is fair enough to say. And not that Canada is a perfect society by any means, but when you go to get your groceries in Canada, you don't really feel that divide in the same way. And the reason for that, I think, is that you know that the checkout person, and they know that you know, is getting a decent wage because of the unions. And probably because we're not quite so obsessed with private education, because these grocery stores are based in neighborhoods, there's a good chance that you know that the checkout person knows that you know that your kids probably go to the same public school, may have the same teacher. And third, and most essentially, that checkout person knows that you know that they know that you know that if your kids get sick and their kids get sick, they may have to wait in line like we all do in Canada, but we'll get the same treatment. And those three strands woven together become the sort of social fabric of, of social democracy. And that's why I think one of the things that people in the United States fail to understand about healthcare in particular is that it's not really about health. It's about social solidarity. It's about sending a message to everybody in the society that they count, that there's somebody. And I think if you try to understand why there is demonstrably so much anger in the United States, not just the Democratic Republican divide, it's more than that. It's yeah. like a country ready to explode. So I think, you know, a lesson in all of this, uh, back to the theme of passage rights, is that culture matters. You know, culture is not decorative. It's not about just the clothes we wear, the prayers we utter, the songs we sing, the moves we make on the dance floor. Culture is basically about a body of ethical and moral values that every culture places around each individual to keep at bay the barbaric heart that history teaches us, sadly, lies within every human being. It, you know, it's culture that allows us to make sense out of sensation, to find order and meaning in the universe, so that, as, uh, you know, to do as Lincoln said, seek the better angels of our nature. And when you lose the constraints of culture, then you get the points of violence and chaos and, and kind of almost degradation that we see all around us in the world. So, so I think that the passage rights are also about educating the youth into the very mores and values of the society, morals from God, ethics from humans, that allow us all as a social species to function. I mean, if you take the Ten Commandments, for example, most cultures around the world would understand them all and embrace them all, not because the Judaic tradition, wondrous as it was, was uniquely inspired, but because those are the rules that allow a social species to function. I mean, I don't know any culture that tolerates murder or theft or doesn't have some notion of adultery and so on. So th these are the structures of our lives. And I think the passage right is partly a way of saying you are part of this structure. And now, in fact, not only are you part of it, you will be in charge of it. And, and the entire fate of our people, our cultural survival itself, depends on both you understanding the importance of that, embracing it, and then living it. 
I love that element of like the society telling them teenagers, well, now we need you. Absolutely. Imagine if we were saying that I collect, I have shivers because I'm just picturing when my kids will be that age, you know, I, I want to do a ritual custom made to them to say, okay, we need you. Imagine how empowering, you know, how there is the sense of responsibility instead of saying, like, oh my God, you're a burden, you know. Of course they do not. And I think, if I you think were just saying like, we respect you, we need you. Also, I think, you know, for example, when I was young, I used to be working for the parks and I would work with these youth crews. These kids would come to us from every social strata, every economic class all over the province of British Columbia. And they arrived in those work camps utterly kind of spoiled and brash and as, as obnoxious as a teenager can be because they were on edge. They were trying to impress everybody. And just through hard work and climbing mountains and creating challenges, it was like an initiation. You know, we, we took them up mountains. We made them work. We exemplified in our own labor <sighs> what it meant to work, you know, and I remember when I was 15, you know, I, I was in the parks and there were all these forest fires and we were too young to fight them, They're, but they desperately needed the men. So they broke all those rules. I'll just never forget when an older wow. man said to me, here's a chainsaw. There's a forest fire 10 kilometers up that valley. Go find it. If you can build us a helipad, we might give you a ride out. Otherwise, you'll have to walk out. And by the way, here's a can of beans. See you later. And I just was like, wow. I just exploded with pride. It was like, you bet I'll put mm. the fire out. You know, and we did. We found it. We put <laughs> it out. And I came back another person. I was a different human being when I came back. And the thing is, it's not like these rights are imposed alone on teenagers or, or, or young people. No. Young people that age are desperate for such yeah. rights. They want them. They want to be given responsibilities and chances to prove just how great they are. And if we don't give young people chances to do that in an institutional way, they'll find them on the streets. Exactly. The, the harder it was, the better. I, I'm thinking of our show, Cop. The show is directed by Robert Lepage, who is a world traveler. And you can see that in his universal way to tell the, the stories. And in Cobb, you see a lot of like risk-taking. And you made me realize that one of the reasons why we love Cirque du Soleil, although I work there, I'm still every day impressed and inspired. And, and a lot of it has to do, I think, by the fact that as a human being, you look at someone who will go to his or her limit. Like they do a one salto on the trapeze. Okay, that's one thing. And then, oh, can he do two salto? And then, that moment and you you are with that person and when that person succeeds it you succeed and I like to think that when, when we do a Sudosoday show we welcome people who have a collection of fears limitations and worries and when you have this moment where they all look at the acrobat meeting his or her limit and going beyond that then those individual fears and worries transform into one collective joy of, oh, wow, okay, that's, that's possible. And there's this empowerment moment that is so great. And so what is great with Carl is that it does it with tableaus of acrobatics. It's not, there's some acts, but there's also moments of really big physicality, but into a, a dramatic context. This, the beautiful fight, the confrontation between the good and the bad, 
people and they're just hanging on wires and, and you can feel the fire because we play with fire into that show. And this was a rite of passage actually for Cirque du Soleil because we wanted to challenge ourselves on the Vegas Strip. Robert's idea with Mark Fisher, the late Mark Fisher, the, mm. the incredible set designer, they said, okay, let's, let's start by not having a stage. And, you know, when you do acrobatics, the stage is the most important and safest thing. So, no, let's remove the stage. So it was like so many things were invented for that show because we put ourselves outside of the comfort zone. So let's let's listen to that clip from Ka. It's very important to safety uh, issues because just the forest scene, uh, most of them, they're on the single point of failure. And this is what we would always want to avoid. We'd always want to have two point of failure. So if one fell, we'll always have a backup. In the first scene, all of the artists are longe or attached. There's a rigger up there in the grid. But if the rigger makes mistakes or if the ropes get ripped, there's no net. Jacques, he brought all of his rigging team up there. He told them that one at a time, they will go take the position of the artist. When he did that, there was a couple of them that were freaking out. So he said, well, you guys are not going to be rigor from that part of that show. So that's that's the way that, because he needed them to feel exactly what the artist will feel. It's because they have a life at the end of their rope. I recognize the voice of Stéphane Manjou, who was the director of production in that show. My friend Jacques Paquet, who is the extraordinary rigging designer of Ka. And one thing I respect is that he really cares. All, all our designers care for the safety of our artists and not just the safety, but the comfort. And we always have a factor two of safety. So if there's no net, there is a, a hand loop or something. But there's a couple moments in Ka where there's no two, factor two of safety. So he asked every single rigger who would be involved in those moments to go and hang in the same position than the artist. And if someone would say, I'm not comfortable, he would say, okay, we'll move you to another show. Because it's very, very important to do that. You know, what you were describing about the rigors is so interesting because in all of these traditional passage rites, in a way, the role of the rigor is played by the culture itself. You know, the, the boy is sent off into the wilderness on the vision quest. Well, people are waiting for it him to come home you know the, the girl has her first mince a period she's put into the hut but the mothers are waiting for her to come home so there isn't at least in a metaphorical sense that same sense of of mutual support and again if for example somebody embarks on a kind of shamanic initiation on their own as i've had friends in western culture do I actually had one friend who uh, had a kind of vision and pursued what he thought was a revelation in a very serious way, months at a time in the wilderness alone, isolated in a hut the rest of the year, pursuing this kind of spiritual insight he had. He kind of created his own religion. And I, I once said to a professor at UCLA, a mentor of mine who was an authority on shamanism, I said, Johannes, let me tell you about someone, I'm just going to tell you what this character does in his kind of daily and monthly and annual devotions. And when I finished my account, Professor Wilbert said, that's a pure shamanic path. And the minute I explained who the individual was and where he was doing this, 
Professor Wilbert said that's a recipe for psychosis. Because if you don't have a community to bring the vision back to, it's very difficult. And I think that's something that happens in our culture, you know. In the absence of formal rites of initiation, we go out and find them. I mean, in my case, it was to go on the road to the Amazon. You know, I left um, university when I was, I guess, 19 and spent a year and a half in the Amazon living pretty intensely on the open road in South America. And at the time, I didn't think of it this way, but in retrospect, it was absolutely was a passage rite. I was, I was giving myself the opportunity to succeed or fail. And at that time, for those 15 months, I only had one word in my vocabulary for any new experience, and that was yes. I believed at that time that bliss was an objective state that could be achieved just by opening yourself unabashedly to the world and, and figuratively. And literally, I drank from every stream, including tire tracks in the road. And naturally, I was constantly sick with malaria and dysentery, and fevers that rose in the night and broke with the dawn. And I remember once even on a, on a day's notice, I embarked on a traverse of the notorious Darien Gap at the time a couple hundred miles of swamp and rainforest. And I I got lost for 10 days with no food. And I mean, it was really an extraordinary experience. When I finally arrived at the other end of it and got off a little plane in Panama with only the rags on my back, a fungus growing all over my body, uh, $3 to my name, you know, I, I had nothing, but I had never felt so alive, you know. So I think we put ourselves through these passage rights and and I think it's okay but it'd be awfully nice to have a little bit of guidance <laughs> it's funny because it, it, every time we speak you always uh, make me realize of, of memories that I just you know shoveled in my brain and <laughs> when, uh, when, when I, I was uh, maybe 17 or 18 I decided to make a, a one man show and to tour it and I, I went to a convention of French teacher And I sold the show that didn't exist. And uh, they had told me, like, can you uh, present an excerpt? It was like three days later. And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. So I took actually a clown nose and I just made up something that I presented as a showcase of a show that does not exist. And I had a, a, a friend of mine and she would be the controlling of uh, the soundtrack that I did, you know, and stuff. Like that. And here we are at eight in the morning. We had 90, 90 audience members, never rehearsed the show, didn't even know the duration of the show. So we start the show and I just look at her. I said, no, just follow me. My character will say music and just put the music on and stuff. We did the whole thing. It was exactly one hour and a half. And then clap, 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 ding. And it, so I'm just, I'm just realizing that this was my rite of passage. Like, I want to make a show. If I can do this, then, you know, I will be fearless. You know, one of the things I say to young people is, is that creativity is not the motivation of action, it's the consequence of action. You have to do to create, right? And secondly, for a young person, the most important thing is to be an opportunist, not in the sense of being a schemer, but to put yourself in the way of opportunities in situations where there is no choice but success. And then you suddenly find yourself capable of doing things that would have been beyond mm -hmm. your imaginings a few weeks before. I want to extend from the whole community at Sudu Soleil a huge, huge thank you. And from on the behalf of our listeners, it was such a pleasure. Thank you, Michelle, so much. I want to thank Wade Davis and I want to thank the whole team who's produced that podcast. 
to the listeners. I want to thank you for your presence. Join us for each episode as we delve into the themes and ideas that underpin Cirque du Soleil shows. Learn more about the roots of creativity and how to keep your eyes, mind, and heart open to new sources of creative inspiration. And remember, it can come from anywhere and anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Sick to Sound. I am Michel Apis. À la prochaine. Sick to Sound is produced by Sick du Soleil with technical and story production by Jar Audio. If you like what you heard today on Cirque du Sound, please subscribe, comment, and leave a review. 